0: Welcome to Vernacular Reality, the VR-focused extension of Language Matters by Diplomatic Language Services. Join me, Blythe Collins, as I explore how a language company can implement virtual reality as a learning tool. Welcome back to Vernacular Reality. I am back with Sean as always, who is head of immersive software at DLS. And today we have a guest. We have Jordan Higgins here with us. He is an XR designer and adjunct faculty at George Mason University School of Art. He's here to talk to us about the VR scene in the area, VR innovations in general, and how he's using VR to improve training. Hi Jordan. Hello.
1: Hey Jordan, how's it going?
2: Good. Thank you for having me.
0: So let's just start out with an intro to you and your work, um, kind of what you're all about.
2: Sure. So uh, you know, most of my background has been in user experience design and, and more traditional web design. Um, about four years ago, I got my hands on the Hololens, and you know, the company that I was working for, uh, we got really, really into it. We, you know, you know this idea that we could bring holographic content and 3D objects into the world with us in this sort of mixed reality. Uh, space. We just it was very, very exciting to us we saw this potential for spatial computing to to change all sorts of things. Um, the company I was with you know went you know became one of Microsoft's first HoloLens agency partners. From there, we started working a lot with uh, uh, virtual reality, and um, you know really, like like you know four years ago, it was a lot of sort of you know the technology was starting to get you know more accessible, you know easier to create content for, and it was just sort of this this fantastic uh, uh, you know, sort of rush to find where does it really change things and deliver value in ways that it previously hasn't. Um, aside from that, I'm also uh, I teach at George Mason University's School of Art, where uh, I teach web design and usability and design thinking. And uh, one of the things that that we're very big on you know right now is teaching Web XR, this idea that we can create immersive experiences that can be delivered on multiple devices in the web browser. Yeah you mentioned
1: your background being in web development. Um, that's how I got started in VR also. Uh, I was, I had my own freelance consulting doing web and database development and, um, Google had announced Google Cardboard and I just happened to have some lenses laying around <laughs> from, uh, from some, from some old photography projects. And, uh, I just kind of wrapped them around my cell phone with some duct tape and the cardboard box they came in and, uh,
2: are you saying you built your own Google Cardboard?
1: Yep. Yeah. The day they like announced it, I was yeah from scratch. It was, wow. I was watching the Google I/O conference where they announced Google Cardboard, and I realized I could I could make this right now while they were talking about it, and that's how I made my first VR headset. And immediately knew this is a big deal. This is this is what we need to be doing.
2: That is awesome. I know, like when when I when I first started working with VR, it was actually before I started working with the web. It was uh, like 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 late '90s, and it was this, you know, the w- platform called Alpha World where you could go in and build virtual worlds in this sort of you know, desktop client. Very surreal. Imagine imagine a very like primitive, you know, Minecraft type of type of world, but you know, it, it really highlighted that problem though. Like 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 the, you know the idea of like a, a virtual reality headset, you know, back then would have been you know, I think I think that was about the time that the first like like uh, location-based VR experiences happened, right? Like like Dactyl Nightmare. I remember I remember driving. I was in a school down in Southwest Virginia. I remember driving about an hour to go to a mall that had, you know, the Dactyl Nightmare. This was like a big, looked like something from the future. You put like a big giant you know headset on, um, and I, I remember like you know it was like 25 bucks or something for for five minutes. And I I remember thinking that it was the most I had paid to ever get that sick. Uh, but you know the, these devices, they, they were you know thousands and thousands of dollars and to create content for them, you know, very, very, you know, arduous and time consuming. Fast forward to you know that that Google cardboard announcement, and that really was a pivotal game-changing moment where I I I mean, I remember like like seeking out a Google cardboard after that, but you could but you were able to actually go and build a VR headset out of found materials. I mean, that's just that's just amazing
0: perfect. So, bringing it to present day, um I know that Jordan has worked a lot with virtual reality for training as does Sean, which is what we talk about a lot on this podcast. So, Jordan, if you could just cover that?
2: Sure. Um so at the the companies to work at, we had a a subsidiary that specialized in using mixed reality and virtual reality to help train professional sports teams. Uh, specifically Uh, you know, like NFL quarterbacks and college football teams, um, things that would let a, you know, professional athlete using sort of the tools that they're used to using, PowerPoint, Visio, you know, drawing out, there's also a, you know, a custom desktop application to draw out plays and then be able to visualize them in the device. Um, You know, basically this was, you know, the idea of a wearable computer fits in, you know, you could throw it in a backpack and then anywhere you are could put it on and run through plays and visualize them, at true scale with spatial audio, um, you know, practice, you know, making completions, uh, things like that. And you know, one one of the early benefits that that we just kind of found broadly is that our brains are hardwired to experience the world in 3D. Um, we, you know, it, it helps us form memories faster. It helps us, you know, whenever we can combine multiple senses, whether it's, you know, audio and that sense of scale, um, you know, along with like, you know, physical motions of, of you know, using our hands or moving around a, a, a space, the, you know, the more, you know, we can engage someone on, you know, in uh, multiple senses, then the faster, you know, training will be. And and we're seeing this in the industry all over the place. Like, like, um, you know, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of examples in manufacturing, in healthcare, in, you uh, know, in, you know, in, in, uh, you know, in, in Know, medical schools in in you know really anything that 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 where they really can activate that spatial component you're seeing faster times to 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 get people you know performant on a task um and then also higher rates of retention you know you know down the road um, so one of the things that we were doing in my last job was looking at how could we take those lessons that we learned from uh from you know from from the, the professional sports world and apply them to dod training to uh you know you know bringing them into you know environments where you know similar sort of sort of challenges you know you know sometimes there's you know you know high fidelity physical immersive training like building big simulators can be very expensive they can be geographically locked you know you know you know you know having to have a lot of people travel to one place to do a simulation um you know there's there's still that high level of fidelity it's really you know there there's no substitute for but getting something that is you know in DoD parlance would say the 80% solution in a timely manner that still accelerates training that gets you more immersive um, and gets you more performant, that can also, that has, you know, a ton of benefit down the road too. Um, So that was, you know, and and I I think one of the other things that we were really excited about is that when we're in these, you know, sort of, you know, VR headsets or or mixed reality headsets, we're also generating spatial data. We're generating data about people's movements, about their, you know, their eye, you know, eye tracking, um, you know, general performance data, you know, time on task and, uh, you know, successful completion rates, things like that, all these, you know, these sort of traditional, you know, metrics that we would look at combined with the sort of new universe of, of spatial analytics. And, uh, you know, I think, I think we're just starting to tap the surf, you know, tap into this just sort of wealth of potential insights that are out there that, that, that aren't even fully, you know, tapped yet, but I think it's changing fast.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting stuff. Um, the, yeah, the the boundaries for what we can do with all of this data in the training context are just really huge.
2: And you know, you know, I, I had a chance to see some of what Sean's working on with uh, the you know taking 360 environments and putting people directly into them, um, and and making those sort of connections between the things that we're saying and what we're hearing, and the actual environment that we're in. Um, you know, even, even now, I mean, Sean, I think you showed that to me, what, two months ago, but, but just having an it somewhat at scale, even through the web browser, I have more of a sense of the, the space of that, of that experience. And, and I imagine if I actually had done it inside of a headset, then that would be an even stronger association with, with, with the, the content that you were, you're conveying.
1: Yeah. We've actually had a chance to run a few students through the application now and, um, and the uh the feedback has been amazing um our students are saying that they feel a much uh much greater connection to what they're talking about that they see details in in the the subject um that they they don't think they would have noticed before that it's easier to think about this place as a real place um when you're when you're in the the immersive context uh in language in language training um, we talk about immersion we talk about surrounding the student with nothing but the target language we talk um, a lot about um, role-playing in in that context of being within the culture it's not just about the language it's also learning about the culture that you are are targeting um, and uh, and by having this immersive environment it makes it more real for the student and it gives them um more motivation to learn um, it's it's more compelling it's it's more fun um, and and it just kind of sits in the brain better i guess uh, you just get that instead of instead of trying to instead of trying to read about a place out of out of text and having having no real concept of what you are, what you're talking about and trying to learn the words about that place and trying to learn what it means to those people that you're that you are discussing, um, then you you get to you get to shortcut that whole uh, that whole cognitive process and just actually do it.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's optimized for the way that we learn, right? Like when we first learn languages, it's, we are immersed in this very new world to us and we're seeing how language relates to people's actions, to facial expressions, to, you know, physical objects in the environment. Like, you know, I I remember from one of my cognitive psych classes, you know, kind of being fascinated by the idea that our, our senses are, you know, constantly perceiving things, even when we're asleep, you know, our brains are receiving you know sensory input from our ears from you know our sense of touch that's constantly being processed and evaluated and analyzed and then you have that sort of executive function in the brain that like basically sorts through all the noise and you know decides what what you know what do you need to know right like what is what is out of all of these possible you know data inputs that are coming in you know what are the important things and so 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 even if you're not like Constantly, consciously thinking. Okay, yeah, they, you know, this person's wearing, you know, a ticket counter uniform, or you know, this looks like a kiosk. That still contributes to the overall experience that your brain is processing, and you know, helps re- you know, establish those, those, you know, patterns that become memories and, and associations. What have the instructors said?
1: Uh, the instructors have enjoyed it as well. You know, they've they really liked the ability to engage with the students on this much, um, much deeper level. Uh, you know, they, they're already seeing that the students are more engaged, all of those things that make the students better students, um, make it a more enjoyable experience for the teacher too. you know, the teacher having better students gets to do better work.
2: Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about this before, but you know, like, like, like this whole idea of like zoom fatigue, right? Like of, of going from virtual meeting to virtual meeting to virtual meeting and, and, and just kind of being tired from it um, you know uh, you know i've I've noticed that as as my classes have moved online too the students are feeling that like 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 you know you know it really it's having a huge impact on them we was doing a, a brainstorming workshop you know specifically on how do we improve the student experience for uh, my design thinking class and and it was amazing like, like like we were doing an empathy map where we were learning how to like you know put yourself in you know a User shoes and think about what they're hearing, seeing, you know, saying stuff like that. Nothing anybody was saying was positive. Right. Like, like it's, it's, in, you know, I've definitely seen a bunch of like empathy mapping exercises where it's been more negative than positive. Like, like definitely, usually it's in the context of trying to solve some problems. So that's to be expected. Nothing positive at all though. Like, like it, there's so much fatigue from this, this sort of, you know, remote distanced, you know, not face to face, but screens within screens, you know, ways of interacting with each other. That I think is, is where I'm really seeing a lot of potential for, you know, the classroom environment, you know, you know, you know, from, you know, like being able to kind of bring people into more of a 3D space to, to get more of that sense of scale. Um, It seems like that, that, that's something that, 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 like, I I think it, it sounds like your, your students would probably be really interested in too.
1: Yeah, well if you think about, you know, traditional teleconferencing software, it's designed to replicate the conference room. And so the whole paradigm is centered around a single speaker projecting information at the at the other uh, attendees. And you know, for a language instruction company, we're about helping people communicate when you go somewhere and you speak in that person's you know, that person's native language you are saying something even before you begin saying words. You're saying, I care about this conversation enough to have learned your language. And so all of those nonverbal cues are incredibly important uh, to, to this task. And it's completely lost in traditional teleconferencing software. Whereas with virtual reality, you, you see an avatar of a person. You're not seeing a real person, but you're seeing a whole body. And you're seeing it in relation to your body and you're seeing it in relation to an environment and you're surrounded in this environment. This environment has other sounds in it. We, you know, we, put, we put sounds of birds in the background and if the scene has other people in it, we put, a, we put background noise of a crowd there. And so it gives you that sense of being able to look at somebody, direct your attention at them. How many times have you sat in a Zoom meeting and and felt some self-conscious about whether or not you're looking in the camera lens or at the screen or... <laughs> Too you know, many. Right. in All the time. In virtual reality, that's that's gone. That's gone. You just look at the person's avatar. and And if somebody over your shoulder starts talking because of the spatialized audio system, you hear it coming from the side. So you no longer think about interacting with the software. You just do. You just use all of the conversation techniques you already have we have motion tracking for the avatars so you can do things like you can shrug you can shake your head you can nod your head and that has that has communication meaning that you're not really going to get the same on a on a zoom screen where you know maybe maybe the user doesn't even have their video turned on or they have their they have their camera set up to where it's cutting off you know the the bottom half of their face because laptop cameras are not set up you know perfectly
2: so that actually makes me think about one of our early hololens concepts where we were really interested in the ability for remote users to kind of share a holographic experience you know from you know across the country across the world you know wherever they happen to be you know having a a one person wearing a Hololens on East Coast, another person wearing a Hololens on West Coast, and looking at a 3D map of an area. You know, this was a military uh, simulation, you know, thing that we were looking at. But um, you know, traditionally we were looking at at things that they would do, where they would build these sort of big, giant maps in like like gymnasiums, and people would you know walk around the maps, and you know, require everybody to be in one place. It was really, really exciting to actually be able to have that. Holographic avatar of someone sharing a space like so rather than having to get on a plane fly across the country You know, you know take, you know, two or three days out of your schedule just put the device on and you know Beam into sort of this this shared holographic world and then being able to convey a lot of the the same sort of interactions that make that meaningful You know being able to see where someone else is looking being able to uh, you know, you know, like you're saying when, when somebody's talking knowing that they're behind you so that you, you know, you turn around and look at them, those little things, you know, add up into a more meaningful natural experience. Um, and that, you know, avatar design was a whole nother, like, 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 you know, fascinating, like deep dive, you know, area that we went into, like trying to think of, you know, especially in sort of military environments where you had people from different branches of the service, people at different ranks, um, you know, in some of the early stuff we were doing, we just had sort of one avatar, right? That was the generic avatar. We started to get into, uh, you know, design studies of, you know, avatars where we had, you know, your your branch of service was reflected in the you know the uniform you were wearing, your rank was reflected in the type of uniform that you're you know, the, and this was you know sort of before we had more realistic you know you know at, at some point way down the road we'll have three D volumetric video that perfectly matches you. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're a ways away from that, that now being real time, but, uh, you know, in the short term, you know, there's so much potential for those avatars to, to convey different aspects of culture. And, you know, I I was thinking about that in terms of military culture, but, but it seems like that would have other cultural implications too, for, for the type of training that you're doing.
1: It's, uh, it's interesting. I, 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 suddenly had a flash of memory to first starting out on the internet, being on message boards and not having a photo of myself that I could use as a profile photo because we didn't have cell phones, you know, smartphones yet with cameras in them. And today, you know, we, we all have whatever photo we want up there. We change them to suit our feelings for the day. I think that's one of the benefits of non-realistic avatars is that uh, it becomes another form of expression and it's something that you can have another degree of control over uh, in in how you present yourself to people. We have the technology to do full 3D scans of people, and it only takes a it only takes a couple of minutes, and then you can you can take that 3D scan of a person, and you can use it as a 3D model that you can then morph and control. As this as this technology grows and becomes more of a day to day portion of people's lives. I think that's something that people are going to want. I think people are going to want to be able to put themselves into the environment.
2: Yeah, I mean that's sort of a natural, you know, you know. Extent. I mean, we've seen this in in game design for ages. People love to express themselves through their their character design. It just seems like sort of a natural bridge into bringing that into more everyday and and you know you know training and productivity type of applications. One of the things that that I think was really effective about the platform we were working with. Was that we designed the the scenario building tools to to work in the the you know in, in the language and manner that that the subject matter experts you know in this case like coaches or you know you know military you know leadership using sort of the same tools and terminology that they were familiar with to then automatically you know you know to to build the the mixed reality or VR content and I think you know that 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 that's I think you know been one of the huge barriers to adoption right there like like the idea of building immersive training scenarios required, you know, a small, you know, game development team, you know, like, like it required 3d, it required programming, it required UX, you know, all these sort of different things that had to come into it. The the more we could build a platform around a specific, you know, training need, or, you know, set of parameters, then the easier it was to put you know, the, the, the content creation tools into, you know, the hands of the experts that could build it.
1: Yeah. You look back at the history of, of computing and you look at the the early transition from from text interfaces to graphical user interfaces. Um, And it didn't come from the operating system from the start. If you wanted your software to have this graphical interface, you had to have graphics experts on your software team to be able to make it happen. We take it for granted today that um, you can have a button on the screen and it can be clicked on and it can fire an event that you can respond to. And that's stuff that any junior programmer can set up nowadays. That's um, stuff that we have software tools that a designer can often wire up these things um, on their own. But when it first started, it took knowing how to draw these things manually. You know, knowing how to fill up uh, a grid of numbers with that would be interpreted as colors to uh, to draw a box with some text in it and knowing how to do the math of reading mouse location and figuring out it was on top of a button and knowing how to then propagate that into an action you know that's kind of that's kind of where we've been for the last 5 or 6 years of virtual reality is that the system itself doesn't provide a lot it's more on the the development side to be able to make things happen but we're seeing we're seeing change there as well a lot of new frameworks coming out for Building software, even within the open source world, people have been using Unity and and tools like Unreal to build um, build VR stuff. Um, that's still more on the the programming side.
2: Yeah, I think I think AFrame was a game changer for me. You know, just just as, as somebody who's been building websites, you know, since the early days, being able to create AR VR content using HTML, CSS, JavaScript. It was a very familiar environment to start working in and then you know seeing some of the stuff that we can do now with like 3js you know i mean that's by itself is a huge game changer one of one of my most recent projects we built a um mobile uh, augmented reality game for for a government client where you could actually scan a quarter like a, a normal everyday coin and activate a 3d model that came to life and interacted with web page content this is a type of experience that wouldn't even have been conceivable to do this as a web app until fairly recently and and doing all sorts of things on the the actual mobile device previously you know we would have had to build this in unity or unreal and deploy it as an app across you know multiple platforms being able to do that with web standards it was three a lot of 3js a lot of webgl and and and, uh, built on the react framework just game changer like like that's you know, and, and and I think that's where you're going to start to see like a real push towards more consumer adoption too. Uh, you know, that 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 ability to create these experiences that don't require downloading an app, web designers and web developers and UX people will be able to build in the environments that they're familiar with. You know, it's not learning something completely new from scratch, but it's it's you know enhancing things that we're already familiar with. That feels like it's going to be a very rapid shift.
1: Yeah, I think that's why for. The last few years, we've heard so much about this This VR stuff's not going to take off. It's not relevant to the general people. because up to now, everything has just been technology demos. It's just been graphics and and waving a controller around in the air. It's not been connected to anything in the world. And our world today is is oriented around the web. And now that we can do VR on the web so easily... We can connect to the vast wealth of of web services that are out there. We can start pulling in the data that you care about. And that's, I mean, that's where the real value of every application lies. It's in the data that you have available to the application. The interactions that you design for that application are important. You know, you're, you're going to give people a really bad time if you don't get that right, but you're not going to give them a great time. If you don't have something important for them to do once they're there, you know, that's, I think that's, that's one of the biggest things that's different about just the last year or two in the, in the VR industry is just this ability to start actually building important applications because we finally have the tools to connect to all the data we have. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you think are some of the more important developments
2: going on right now? So, you know, we definitely we just talked about WebXR just last weekend they held the you know the first ever WebXR awards where they were sort of recognizing a lot of you know great experiences and both developers and frameworks and and you know entertainment experiences, educational that community alone has has you know just exploded in the past year. So I think we're we're gonna see a lot of new people, you know, a lot of new ideas, a lot of people coming from you know, outside of sort of traditional designer developer backgrounds, but new people coming in with ideas to, to start to build them out and actually having the tools to be able to do it. I think that's, that's going to be huge. The Oculus Quest, definitely, you know, lots of indicators about how at that price point, it's getting in more people's hands and it's becoming more a, a natural part of people's computing experiences. This question can't go without also, you know, including at least some speculation about whatever Apple's going to come out with. Like the latest now is that it's going to be less smart glasses and more, you know, like a mixed reality headset that's, you know, doing things like maybe like pass-through video. Between that and like, devices like Unreal and, you know, whatever Facebook's cooking up. Samsung has a new smart glasses concept. There definitely seems to be that race for getting things on people's faces to get them off of, you know, looking at these like small little screens and more into seeing that digital content around them. I think it's just going to be really, really interesting to see, like, will consumers actually start to gel around a format kind of the way that they did with the smartphone? A lot of this stuff has felt like what happened when, when Apple released the iPhone. Like that transformed the industry because all of a sudden we started to think about things like what what does a mobile app do that a that a website doesn't? Why would we build a mobile app? And then also what do we need to do to build mobile websites? That changed the whole web design and you know developer world. It's going to be interesting to see with whatever's coming out in the next, you know, in the near term, what's actually going to you know take us out of this sort of like, well, yeah, in these very specialized, specific to an industry applications, what actually becomes more of an actual platform that people start really building on and, and really gets out into to broad adoption.
1: Yeah, it's uh, interesting. You brought up the the iPhone and smartphones. I kind of have this mental model of what smartphones really did for us was that it freed up our feet. We were no longer tethered to our desks. We could go out into the world and still have a computing device with us. And I think that's why I'm really excited right now about uh, hand tracking, getting away from motion controllers and going to just bare hands uh, being tracked with the with our virtual reality devices. Now that we freed up our feet with smartphones, I want to free up our hands with with hand tracking.
2: And you know the the hand track hand tracking has been really really fascinating, um, seeing how much that's kind of taken off and and some of the things that people are doing with it now. Well, I think I think I saw one demo where people were you know somebody was like tying knots, you know, using hand tracking, and and I mean that just blows my mind. Even you know you know from you know spending years with sort of like the first gen mixed reality things where we were just doing this. And and, you know, for the podcast, I was just kind of doing a tap gesture where we're like doing a virtual tap in the air.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you remember this old uh, comedy show, Kids in the Hall. Oh yeah, there was there was a character that would crush your head.
2: (laughs) Absolutely, and I'm I'm actually surprised that nobody built like a head crushing game for the Hololens. So now though, like you've got you know much higher fidelity interactions that are possible, and actually Snap, uh, uh, you know, Snap's Lens Studio. And, and I feel like that was probably worth talking about, right? Like the Spark AR platform and the, the, the Snapchat, you know, the lens platform have just empowered an entire generation of content creators that previously would have probably never considered augmented reality development, but they've built these fantastic tools for, for highly creative technologists and designers and, you know, content creators, people that are used to making like videos for YouTube or TikTok or, you know, whatever, turning them into filter creators and, and augmented reality creators those platforms are amazingly democratizing right like like it's the ability to go from no skills at all to publishing your first you know instagram or or snap filter very very fast, right? Like it's it's very empowering. What made me think about the Snap platform is they just released an update, I think, that has really really robust hand tracking to be able to track like specific fingers and and gestures and things like that. We've also got the accessibility community has also really really moved very very quickly to kind of you know especially once it became you know part of the draft web standards for WebXR, the attention that's getting paid and the conversations that are happening around. How do we, you know, make this technology and these experiences more accessible? Very powerful to see that happening so quickly, too.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's very very exciting times to be living in.
2: And always good to talk about it with you. Every day there's like something
1: new to
0: like speculate about or talk about. Well, I'm happy that I could facilitate. It was nice to listen to
2: two experts. What is your perception of the technology when you've seen like like VR experiences or augmented reality?
0: My like main frame of reference is Snapchat filters or Instagram filters, because that's what made me think of when you were describing the coin application. It made me think of Snapchat. I am not like, I've never gotten into it, but I I know how easy it is. I know that you can like submit your own and do it yourself, which I think is cool. And it's just interesting because I feel like if if I am hearing about these innovations then it's pretty mainstream, which is, I think notable because now it's like immersive software is for young people and for, you know, any, anyone who's using these platforms, which is a lot of people. (laughs) And not the typical person who would be throwing themselves into immersive software research who like, wouldn't, I don't know, wouldn't have that much background knowledge anyway. Yeah. But I have learned a lot. I have learned a lot just from talking with Sean last episode. He like outlined a bunch of different platforms, which I of course didn't know existed. And it's just so interesting how many different things VR and AR and mixed reality can be used for just like so many different topics from like exercise to like, creating like a decorating the world around you or for training obviously which is like the primary one that i've been learning about
1: i think that's one of the frustrating things about being a a practitioner in this field and and watching the popular tech press talk about vr and only ever talk about games and and it's almost always coming with some sort of assertion that oh vr has died again we're never going to hear about vr again Because of some of some game not selling a billion copies, like that's their that's their metric of success. And it's not anything about that. It's about, it's about really fitting computers into people's lives better. You know, right now we have people really kind of talking about how much they are a slave to their machine and how they, you know, they always have their head in, in their smartphone, but with immersive technology, we can take that away completely. We can, we can put you back into the world, talk of like augmented reality, augmented reality doesn't even really necessarily have to have graphics, we could do augmented reality completely in, in an audio space. Um, which is, which is re- a really fascinating, uh, place to, to study right now. And when you, when you have that, then you can be out in th- into the world and interacting with things around you, but not disconnected from the halfway around the world. You can be, you can be more connected to the world, both your local immediate environment and the rest of the world
2: at the same time. So it's very clear that like, you know, at DLS, you're building sort of the future of like language training platforms with an immersive in mind. What What is sort of the next stage in that?
1: I've always tried to keep uh, a design mantra, mantra in mind that we're not here to build virtual reality. We're here to enhance the teaching and the learning experience. And so in in this particular case, you know, the virtual reality is a way to enhance that Connection to culture. And so whatever it takes to do that, to continue to enhance that student and teacher bond, we're looking at tools to give teachers to be able to create their own scenarios on the fly. I kind of I kind of think of it like being a wizard and and being able to control the environment around you, you know, be able to make a make an apple appear right in front of you so you can talk about what's the word for apple, you know, toss it around and talk about what is, what is the word for throw and actually throw the apple to the person I mean, communication. Um, you know we have teleconferencing built into the application um, any way we can enhance that communication. maybe it's getting out of the lesson oriented modality that we have right now and just having meeting rooms that you can you can pop into with a person.
2: That's interesting. It seems like there's a whole new category of educational you know models that will will gel around that too. I think what makes that so effective though or what i what I think is really strong about that is that it's not focused on the technology, right? You know, it's very easy to get sort of hung up on the universe of the latest and greatest headset or framework or whatever. You know, with the focus on the practical application of it, it becomes that evolution of of what you're doing rather than you know something that's kind of you know a hammer looking for a nail.
1: We're also looking at um, being able to make these tools more available. Accessibility, as you mentioned before, that's a big component of our uh, development process being built on the web platform, we get uh, desktop and tablet support. It's one copy of the software that runs everywhere, which is a lot easier than how it was when I first started with unity on this project. So I actually I started the project in unity. And then uh, about a year ago, um, came back home to web development for the project. And looking towards um, using speech recognition and uh, and text-to-speech systems to give the, the user different ways of interacting, um, to provide more information between the student and the teacher. I, I kind of have this interesting idea of using a speech recognition system from the target language to rate your pronunciation. If you can if you can get the speech recognition system to to understand you, then you're probably saying the words correctly.
2: I'm horrified to think what my how my French accent right now would be evaluated after many, many years out of school. Well
1: thank you, Jordan. As always it is an immense pleasure speaking with you.
2: Thank you. You too. Thank you, Sean.
0: And thank you, Jordan, for visiting us virtually. <laughs> Glad we could have you on.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: That's all for this episode. And we are out. See you on the next episode. Later, Taters. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Vernacular Reality. I hope you'll continue the conversation with us by searching Diplomatic Language Services on Facebook and LinkedIn, following us on Instagram at DC Language, or tweeting us at Diplomatic LS.